Florida Business Minds, presented by the Business Journals of Florida. Brought to you by Tico People's Gas, at the heart of Florida's energy. The Sunshine State's economy and future job market are the focus, as Tampa Bay Business Journal editor Alexis Milner welcomes Fifth Third Commercial Bank Chief Economist and author Jeff Korzenik. Jeffrey Korzenik, welcome to the Florida Business Minds podcast. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. You've talked about how studying economics and investment markets is not about textbook formulas or obscure economic theories. Still, instead, you focus on two pillars of potential economic growth, people and productivity, and how that has led to your less traditional form of market analysis. And that includes everything from really studying social issues that plague the workforce growth, for example. And we're going to talk about your dynamic work around second chance hiring and your fantastic book, Untapped Talent. But I want you to take us back a little bit first to, to growing up in Hartford and, and how this thinking evolved in you. And and was it something, this notion of being an economic explorer, did that predate your time at Princeton? I think it did. It laid the groundwork. I didn't know it at the time, but uh, Hartford, uh, as I was growing up in the in the uh, 70s and late 60s, was a troubled city. And I did see how social issues and issues like education infrastructure could impact the economy of cities. But I really came together, I think, when I was at Princeton studying economics. And uh, that's how I was able to start putting structure around these concepts as well. Undergrad is often a place to dabble and figure out what you want to do, and a great place at an institution like Princeton, I imagine, allowed you to kind of formulate that thinking. But did you go into college, you know, with this passion for economics, and where did that come from? You know, I was interested. I remember having discussions in high school about uh, why didn't the government just put a price cap on oil prices because oil prices were were soaring, and and having people push back who had tools of argument. They had taken economics in high school. I had not. And I got intrigued with, they had skills that they could apply to the real world that I did not have. And that probably led me to taking my first economic class in freshman year. But I went in thinking I was going to be a policy and international affairs person. But once I took my first Econ 101 class, I was absolutely hooked. I subscribed to the Wall Street Journal starting in college and never stopped. And uh, have always been fascinated by this interplay of society, the capital markets, and the economy. Yeah, well, that worked out pretty well. I have no complaints, and actually it's been a deeply gratifying path. And now as chief economist, I mean, that's a role that, I mean, you've seen constant evolution, but I imagine every day is different for you. Take us a little bit into sort of what days are like for you. How do you navigate and manage your time? Sure. A large part of my role is communicating with our customers and my colleagues and giving them tools that they can use essentially to make our customers' lives better, have insight into the economic cycle so that they can plan better as businesses. Looking at long-term trends has been a big focus in things like workforce and reshoring of manufacturing. What that breaks down to is a lot, an awful lot of reading and a fair amount of analysis. So in addition to doing our own proprietary research, we have combined with our wealth and asset management division, we have a multi-million dollar budget for getting outside research. So I have access to some of the top Wall Street economists that I can use in formulating our own thinking. We also have been uniquely positioned, I think, at Fifth Third Bank because of our vast network of middle market businesses. And this has been a great 
way of testing the waters in the economy. I will do meetings around the country, both big sort of presentations as we did with the Tampa Bay Business Journal, but also uh, what we've sometimes termed CEO roundtables, small breakfasts or dinners or lunches with a group of CEOs where it's really just this interactive discussion. Very often in the past, that has led our economics and our wealth team to pick up on trends before they were visible to the rest of the economy. Middle market businesses are incredible. The CEOs, the owners of these businesses tend to have a pulse on their businesses that's very different than, say, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company who has just too many levels and layers between the C-suite and what's going on in the ground. Middle market business owners know what's going on in the ground, and we start picking up trends. The plural of anecdote is not data, but when I hear a trend in Atlanta and hear that in Tampa and hear that in Michigan, it tells me what kind of data to seek out. And that's been, in essence, our secret weapon at Fifth Third, giving us insight and and we've really scooped some of our major competitors because we listen to our businesses on the ground. It's really fascinating insight, Jeff, because it does speak to the sweet spot of Fifth Third and its client base. And what better way to get a bead on what's happening than to really listen to those in those leadership roles? And I imagine a trend is at least three. But uh, yeah. I, and I imagine that regionally there's some you know just some differences in terms of what you encounter when you're trying to formulate those trends. Absolutely. But just to give you an example, back in uh, 2011, 2012, we started hearing about people bringing production back from abroad among our manufacturers. And since 2012, we've been writing about the possibility and the trend of more manufacturing to come back to the U.S., this reshoring or onshoring trend. Now that's on everyone's lips because it's been in place for a decade and it's been accelerated more recently by the supply chain disruptions of COVID and the CHIPS Act. But this is something that's been in place for uh, really since 2012 And we've been helping our customers identify this opportunity well ahead of what's now become commonplace. Sticking with that manufacturing theme, you at our, and we're privileged enough to have you as one of our featured speakers at our economic outlook uh, that we did about almost two months ago. So it's changed a little bit. And I want to kind of circle back a little bit to what might have changed since then. But you talked about the canaries in the coal mine, the opera of canaries, which uh, for our audience will challenge you. I just gave it away because what is more than a few canaries? It's an opera. And we learned that from Jeff. But you talked about some of the manufacturing indices and that that was one of them, that there was concern about, and and this leads into some discussion that everybody wants to know, which is the crystal ball. You know, when mm-hmm. is the downturn? How difficult might it be? Is it a soft landing? And manufacturing is a big part of that. Where are those indices now? And what are you seeing in the manufacturing realm, especially as you see this reshoring happening? Our embrace of this canaries in the coal mine, the opera of canaries, the plural of or a bunch of canaries, really is still intact. We were very early on, and this goes back to 2022, which seems like ancient history now, when much of the industry was calling for a deep recession, we were saying, you know, hold on, we have time to work through some of the inflationary forces. There's much more resiliency in the U.S. economy because of labor force dynamics. And while now the consensus view has shifted towards 
our view of a soft landing then, we've actually gotten more cautious. We're seeing some concerns to your point of manufacturing. Manufacturing is in some ways in a recession itself. We've had a contraction period in much of the manufacturing sector by some of the indicators that we use. And historically, that tends to pull down the rest of the economy. It may not this time because of that added resiliency we've pointed out. We're still kind of 50-50 on do we enter a recession or not. The most important thing that we are uh, trying to communicate to our customers is that this now widely talked about case of avoiding a recession, having a soft landing, is probably a little premature and we're not out of the woods yet. And I think the next couple months will tell. Ultimately, for us, this is the year of clarity. By the end of the year, we do expect the Federal Reserve to start cutting uh, interest rates, likely starting in the June meeting perhaps a little bit later. The question out there still is, will the Fed be cutting interest rates because we've won the battle against inflation or will they be cutting interest rates because we are starting to see some profound economic weakness that would be some kind of a a mild recession? Is there a surprise for you in that based on what we heard from you in January? It really hasn't shifted that much since January. We've been much more on this middle of the road path, not a slam dunk recession, not a slam dunk soft landing. And we essentially have kept a middle road uh, there because that's how we see the facts. And as the consensus has swung from deep recession and we push back against that to now soft landing, we're pushing back against that and just sticking with this middle path because we think that's the right path to be on. That makes sense. And I imagine as the business leaders who are listening to this are wondering and always seeking the crystal ball and, you know, you to tell them what's coming ahead, you know, there's no exact science and all that. I imagine that you have to manage expectations about what intelligence is really the most effective for not only your clients at the bank, but also your vast audiences. Part of the challenge this cycle is nomenclature. Our expectation is for a very modest recession or kind of a bump along soft landing. In reality, there's very little difference between the two. This is not a boom time. This is not, in fact, it is a certainly a slowing of growth time, but it's not a deep recession either. So what we've been calling it the muddle through economy, and that's really what we're expecting in here. Given that this podcast has statewide reach and that, you know, you have the perspective of being elsewhere in the country a lot, maybe more than you'd prefer, let's talk about Florida a bit in terms of what's different here. The growth economy has certainly led to a high degree of resilience. What is your outlook for the state? Because I do think it's different around the state, but what are observations you're making about what may be different here than elsewhere? Our view is that the great challenge of the decade ahead for businesses is this workforce issue. And we have a structural labor shortage. So states that can attract population like Florida tend to be winners, not just because more workers coming to a state drives business in general, drives GDP, or even retirees coming drive GDP. But particularly in this labor short world, when you attract workers, you attract companies companies will start following workers. And that's a tremendous advantage that Florida has largely statewide. There's obviously nuances, big differences between, you know, Miami and Naples or Miami and Sarasota. But that is generally true across the state. We're able to attract talent in ways few states can duplicate. And in terms of the kind of wealth we attract, no state is really our equal. 
Interesting thought when you consider affordability issues, which Tampa Bay was labeled for years as, oh, we're affordable. That has gone out the window. That's definitely not the case. And yes, we want to, you know, people will come because they can find work and, but the key is getting to work and how far can they live from work. How much are you thinking about how inflation affects the average workforce traction and affordability? And is that something that you've been thinking about a lot or how does that play into the equation? That's a great question. Typically, the end game for a growth surge uh, is when housing and transportation get stressed. I think you have some signs of that, say, the national market to some degree is feeling more stress and more barriers to access of workers because of affordability and very much because of traffic. I don't think we're to that turning point or as close, even that close to the turning point in Florida. Again, it depends on city by city. But I'm a veteran of New York City commutes. I had one commute that was an hour and 50 minutes each way on average. And uh, any little thing goes wrong and it blows up. Here, say living in, say, Petersburg and going into Tampa, even in traffic jams, it's typically going to be well under an hour. It's much more painful for people who've been here 20 years, for people coming from other parts of the country, coming from Los Angeles, San Francisco. This is not a unattractive place to move. It's still very attractive. The affordability has obviously diminished, but you have to compare it to where people are willing to move from, the New Yorks, the Californias, which have very, very high cost of living and really brutal commutes uh, as well. So it is true these are big issues. It's just I don't think we're at sufficient pain point to slow the in-migration to Florida. The 90 minutes it took me to get from West Shore in Tampa to Pasco County, where I live the other night, aside, I think it is a matter of perspective, right? Would we benefit from a robust public transit infrastructure and much more affordable housing? Of course, we'd benefit from that. But those are not easy things to do. No, and I I think these are longer term issues, but it is helpful to get that perspective. And we've seen it certainly on the real estate side where you have folks in in very high cost market. I'm just saying what you said, uh, trying to come here and realizing they have bargains still. And so uh, it's all a matter of sort of what your point of view is. I'll add if I could. I don't think we've exploited all the opportunities out there. I lived in New Jersey for a while when they were just starting to institute the ferry service to Manhattan. And it was incredible how much easier it made uh, commutes. You know, we've got this bay, we've got lots of water around. Maybe there's opportunities to expand that kind of service. I know some planning authorities are taking a peek at that. Obviously, you have um, opportunities like the Bright Line. So we haven't completely played out all the possibilities in Florida that could really extend this period of growth and exceptional growth. There's been some attempts to do that. The cost structure has been tricky, but you're absolutely right. And transit gods, if you're listening, you know, hopefully, you know, you're hearing Jeff and uh, one of these days we'll, you know, really cash in on some solutions because to your point, businesses will be limited in their growth as long as their people can't get to work. And it's just, it's, it's impossible to do that. That's great. And I'd also say that this ability for more hybrid work and work from home also tends to mean that that even if you have a bad commute, if you're only doing it three days a week, it's not the same as doing it five days a week. Again, great perspective on that. I want to spend some time talking about Untapped Talent, your book, published in 2021 and had a second printing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, in some ways, the demand is actually accelerating. 
to my and my publisher's surprise, there's been a renewed interest in this, and and I see it in in book sales, and it continues to be uh, unusually so for a business book that came out two years ago or three years ago. It seems to still have a lot of resonance, and by a lot of measures, it seems to be picking up an in interest. Which is very exciting, and I sometimes timing is either uh, accidental or fortunate or planned. Uh, in this case. The talent shortage clearly affecting uh, business leaders as they look for alternatives. And as you think about it, and I'd be curious if you could share, sort of where have you seen the needle move in terms of acceptance? I know there are a lot of concerns for some business leaders in a range of things from safety to licensing to the range of things that you cover in the book. But how has it had an impact and where do you see, you know, see the needle moving if, even if it's slow? Sure. I think we should be clear to the listeners what the book, the subject of the book is. It's the business case and best practices of hiring people with criminal records. So um, this is unfamiliar ground to many businesses. Some of it just takes time. I like to think that the advantage of coming out in uh, 2021 was the early chapters of the book outline why we have a labor shortage, structural labor shortage uh, coming. At that time, I uh, submitted the the manuscript for the book in June of 2020. I believe that the unemployment rate was 11%. And here I am saying a labor shortage is coming. So there's a certain amount of credibility that I think being able to say that at a time that was difficult to say that ha- has brought with it. That is helping. But the fact of the matter is businesses are increasingly examining the case for hiring people with criminal records and expanding their applicant pool in productive ways because they have no choice. When you have a structural labor shortage as we have, which is going to actually get worse over the next decade, you have to consider all alternatives. And there is no population, talent population that is more overlooked and larger than the 19 million Americans of felony convictions and the tens of million more with misdemeanors. And this is not to say that all of them or not even necessarily the majority of them can be great employees, but when you have a pool that large, you have to consider the possibilities. What I see happening is it's not that those concerns have gone away of safety and liability and reputation. Those absolutely can be addressed, but that it's becoming more and more apparent, and this is what I lay out in the book on tap talent, that there's a model for picking who's ready and a model for giving those candidates, those employees, the tools to thrive. And so as this model gets around, and while my book is the only book that discusses the model in depth, it's one that is being increasingly promulgated through other sources, typically nonprofits. And so you see businesses that are dipping their toe in the water. They might be starting off with two employees or 20 employees like this, but as their experience and confidence grow, they expand that. The other backdrop against this is you have some of the most important leaders in corporate America are taking a stand. There's something called the Second Chance Business Coalition. It's about 40, 50 companies that have pledged to starting programs and data sharing. I recently had the opportunity at an event uh, for the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, to moderate a panel of CEOs, included middle market businesses that have done just an absolutely incredible job in second chance hiring. Uh, One of them is actually taught as required reading for all Harvard MBA candidates called Nehemiah Manufacturing. But one of the other CEOs uh, on the panel was the CEO of Kroger. Assuming they complete their acquisition of uh, Albertsons at some point this year, they'll be maybe the third largest employer in the United States with six to 700,000 employees. If they can take the step 
other business leaders can take the steps. So it's really coming, it's moving in the right direction. Jeff Korzenik joining us. Next, why second chance hiring must work for business owners. When Florida Business Minds continues. People's Gas, working with businesses across Florida to lower energy usage and costs with efficient natural gas. Get cash back energy conservation rebates when you install new natural gas equipment. Learn more at peoplesgas.com slash bizrebates. What an incredible legacy to be parting on corporate America to help solve a really critical issue, but also change the lives of people who have done their time and are in a position through understanding their profile to be ready to do that turnaround and to then to be incredible, hardworking people. Alexis, you put that in exactly the right order. For this to work, you have to start by making it work for the business owner. Business owners will write checks to charity but they will only hire people who can add value to their enterprise. So the process and what I I think I've helped change the narrative across this criminal justice community is this can't be done as an act of charity. This has to be done as a good business decision. And when you start with how can we find the people who can be good employees and then what else do you have to do? That's a much more productive basis for the conversation. I obviously am not unaware. I certainly believe in the ethical case of people deserve the right to earn second chances or people should not be penalized forever for crimes that don't lock them up forever. I believe in all those ethical cases, but I stay laser focused on what's the case for the business owner as a business decision. And yes, then it does have this wonderful downstream effect of allowing for people to rebuild their lives to build stronger families, more prosperous and safer communities. It's got great side effects, but the basic story has to rest on whether this is a viable business model or not. Important point, especially for business leaders that may be listening to this, that will, of course, first step to buy the book. Second, though, I wonder if you can shed some light in terms of how, and maybe this is part of reading the book, is understanding the difference between recidivists and those who aren't meaning that they've had the kind of work while incarcerated to really understand what they're up against and then commit. It's really um, interesting. It's not what people believe. A lot of business owners approach this, well, I just want to see nonviolent drug offenders. You know, often that's not the way to go because that might be someone who's still battling with addiction. You can't really draw a straight line between what's the crime and what's the likelihood of recidivating, going back to a life of crime. There are some connections, but the real key seems to be things like how much time has gone on between the last offense and the application. That might mean someone who had a crime of violence and was put away for a a long period of time. I've had the good fortune to work with um, probably the the country's leading academic in this, Sean Bushway with the Rand Corporation. He's also a full professor at uh, SUNY Albany up in New York. And uh, we actually had a piece recently in the Harvard Business Review about busting the myths of this. So it's a little bit more involved. What I believe at the heart, and this is the heart of the model that that I've seen work time and time again, and I talk about in the book and, and in my presentations, is that ultimately business owners, employers want to hire people of character, people who will act responsibly, behave appropriately, and be committed to the task at hand, and ideally be loyal as well. And that's something that's very hard to figure out in an interview. So the model that works often is 
partnering with a nonprofit who can essentially attest to the character of the applicant. And that's something that it really works well in this type of hiring. And that's really your best indication, a attestation of someone who's gotten to know the applicant and can attest to this is someone who is truly rehabilitated, ready to take on a role in society. And also, they tend to be people who are eager to prove they're worth more than their worst mistakes. And that translates into high engagement and high loyalty to the employer who gave them that opportunity. And I imagine that a increasing, although somewhat slow, awareness of the importance of mental health and attacking that from just many angles and, and being open about it and having frank discussions about it, especially with those third-party partners, lends to that credibility. Absolutely. And mental health is a big part of this. There's uh, often a lot of trauma, including childhood trauma, among people who do get sentenced to prison sentences. The question is, have they addressed those? And that's what a lot of these nonprofits focus on doing. They actually offer services towards this. Even uh, in some prisons, there's an opportunity to do this. Often faith-based organizations like Prison Fellowship offer people a chance to work on themselves. One of the most effective programs I've seen is in Minnesota, a group called the Redemption Project that offers as the start of their in-prison programming uh, starts with virtue training. How do you make good decisions? How do you lead the good life? And then you get connections to employers, but you start with working on yourself. What caused you to go astray of the law? What is it within yourself that you have to address? And that's where these nonprofits can also play a role, not just providing those services, but attesting that the person has dealt with these issues and is ready to enter the workforce and be a good employee. Well, it's great to see some momentum and some energy in that you know, you're coalescing some of the experts in various elements where this is important. And that's those are things that really move the needle. Jeff, are there certain sectors that are, I know you mentioned certain kinds of sales. Are there certain sectors that are more amenable to this? You know, there's tens of millions of people with criminal records. So you can find every talent out there if you look hard enough. But there tends to be better fits with, for instance, manufacturing or warehouse operations or transportation. That is not necessarily because there's the talent is particularly aligned with that. But those are easier places for employers to open up because many of those roles are not customer facing. So some of your reputation concerns and some of your perhaps safety concerns uh, really aren't significant uh, in those settings. They tend to be higher paid wages and middle skill jobs. So jobs that don't necessarily require a four-year college degree, but can be trained to a level of productivity and contribution that allows for a good wage, a living wage uh, to be paid. And so we see a lot of the breakthroughs and the advocacy among business organizations tends to be in manufacturing. The Manufacturing Institute, the National Association of Manufacturers Education Arm, for instance, um, has done a lot of work in this area. Individual state bodies, I've spoken for the Florida Chamber of Commerce, for the workforce group, done some chambers like the Kentucky Chamber, even has a training program called the Fair Chance Academy to teach their member companies how to do this right. So there's a lot of uh, manufacturing intensive states, transportation, warehousing, all tend to be particularly strong areas. But again, I would stress that there's opportunities for every industry to address their labor force challenge. They just have to do it the right way. And as we begin to wind up, that challenge exists. I mean, you articulated it, birth rate, you, you outline a lot of that in the book. 
and have, have shown that at certainly our forums. Things like early learning efforts are a big part of this, but you also shared, I know, in some writings um, about Japan, and it's not insurmountable. That's right. And there are countries that are ahead of us in the problem. They, their birth rates started dropping before our birth rates uh, started dropping. Birth rates matter because you have the baby boom generation retiring. Who's going to replace them? And there simply aren't enough births 20 and 30 years ago to fulfill the needs of a growing economy. So countries like Japan, our low fertility rate today is something that Japan faced in 1978 and kept falling. Japan is uh, kind of leading the way in major economies that actually have a shrinking population. For 12 consecutive years, their population has shrunk, should have been a disaster for their workforce. Instead, they grew their workforce by over 4 million workers. We can learn from the experience of others in this regard. And it's not just hiring people who've been marginalized like people with criminal records. It's making sure we're maximizing female labor force participation. It's making sure we don't lose older workers who would still like to stay in the workforce. And it's frankly addressing our immigration policy in the case of Japan, I co-authored a uh, Wall Street Journal piece with Japan economist Daisuke Nakajima, and we looked at how Japan, which has even greater barriers to immigration, and it's even a greater political hot button than it is here in the U.S., so they ramped up a, a guest worker program in very meaningful and large ways. Maybe that's the kind of workaround we need in the United States. So others have done it. We can learn from them. We can come up with our own the American business community Florida business community are incredible problem solvers. We're going to see homegrown solutions as well. We're going to need all of them in this workforce shortage ahead. One last quick question for you, Jeff, which is at the beginning of the book, you have a note to those who may be incarcerated. Have you heard from folks that have been incarcerated and must be pointing if you have uh, about how this has changed maybe their lives? I do. The book's audience, my primary audience is CEOs. You know, that's who I'm, to me, is the most important to reach our, our business decision makers. But a lot of people feel a sense of hopelessness once they've been sentenced to a prison record or even sentenced to a felony without a prison term assigned. And I wanted that community to know that there is hope. There's an increasing number of business owners who see them not as a burden on society, but as a resource. And my admonition to that group in the preface to my book is to say, use your time wisely work on what you need to work on. Our country is going to need you from a workforce perspective. I do occasionally hear from people in prison. I hear a lot from parents whose children are coming out of prison. It's very touching, but I always have to keep my focus on it's got to work for the business owner. And so it's touching. It was important to me that the book get into prisons. Uh, Steve Smith, a uh, investment professional and, and very philanthropic person that uh, if anyone um, happens to be familiar with Xavier University in Cincinnati, there's the Stephen Smith Center, for instance. Uh, he financed sending 500 of the books into prison libraries because I wanted that message, constructive message of hope to get out there. And then one quick aside for a prominent business book from a prominent uh, publisher, HarperCollins was my publisher. It's very unusual to have it as a paperback because to get into prison, you can't send hardcovers to most prisons. The fear is that they can somehow be weaponized. So we took this business book and, and made it only a soft cover paperback book so it could get behind bars, even if that's not the primary audience for it. Oh, wow. Something you wouldn't necessarily know. And again, the book is called Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. 
That's really important to read. And Jeff, it's great to hear you um, share more about its impact and how folks who may be listening could go about working on their own talent shortage. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. And again, uh, wonderful to have you as an asset to Tampa Bay and to Florida and in our backyard. And, and just really appreciate you taking some time with us today, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for downloading Florida Business Minds, presented by the Business Journals of Florida. Brought to you by Tico People's Gas, at the heart of Florida's energy.